I have a friend who's trying to clear through everything in his garage. Uh, he's got all this stuff, too much stuff. Well, knowing what matters and then leaving everything else in the garage isn't going to do it. You've actually, you've got to remove, you've got to trade off something less important so that you have the space and time to be able to invest in what really matters. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Our guest today, Greg McEwen, has dedicated his career to discovering why some people and teams break through to the next level and others don't. His New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, has frequently been on the number one time management book list on Amazon. The book challenges core assumptions about achievement to get to the essence of what really drives success. Greg also has a podcast called Essentialism with Greg McEwen. We're excited to have him join us today and explore the intersection of Kanmari and essentialism. Welcome to Spark Joy, Greg. It's great to be with you. You've dedicated yourself to the disciplined pursuit of less. This is a powerful mission, which I imagine that you grew to connect with over time. What drew you into this? particular work, and why do you characterize it as disciplined? Well, first of all, I was working with Silicon Valley companies, and I noticed a predictable pattern, which is that in the early days, they were very focused. That led to success, which breeded lots of options and opportunities, which all sounds like the right problem to have, but it often led to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And whenever these companies or teams would fall into that pattern, they would start to plateau in their progress or fail altogether. In the midst of working and seeing that pattern, that paradox of success, let's call it, I was also having a personal experience. I got a, an email from a colleague at the time that said, Friday between 1 and 2 p.m. Will be, a, will be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. <laughs> uh, you know, because I want you to be at this client meeting and Thursday evening, we're going to the, you know, we're in the hospital and uh, in, the, in the early hours, Friday morning, our daughter is born. And instead of being totally focused on that essential thing, instead of being able to absorb that moment of joy, I'm feeling torn. I'm trying to straddle all the different responsibilities and I'm trying to do it all. So Friday, to my shame, I go to the client meeting. Afterwards, my colleague said, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. But the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of confidence. And even if they had, it's clear, everybody listening to this, that I made a fool's bargain, uh, that I violated something more important for something far less important. What I learned from that was the importance of the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Or if I say it differently, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. This was really how I got into 
what I came to call essentialism. So true. And that's a powerful experience. And so much stemmed from that, because now the cornerstone of your work is the book Essentialism, the Disciplines Pursuit of Less. And it's one that I have turned to in my collection of less is better and themed books or less is more themed books. For those who are new to your work, can you boil essentialism down to its essentials? It is the antidote to the undisciplined pursuit of more, which a lot of people I think can relate to. If they feel busy, but not necessarily productive, if they feel stretched too thin at work or at home, if they feel like their day is constantly being hijacked by other people's agenda for them, you know, that's living in the undisciplined pursuit of more. Essentialism is a different lens, a different way of looking at life that produces a completely different outcome. So let's just talk about the outcomes for a second. What it produces is better work, less but better work. You get to do great work and you just do fewer things. It leads to feeling a bit more in control of your life. You're getting the right things done. And here's an important overlap here. It also means that you live with greater joy in the journey. And so, you know, the end point of essentialism is that you have selected carefully what you do. And so that you're doing the kind of work in your life personally and professionally that sparks joy. Now, the how of doing it is that you take on a different lens. You know, what is essential? Is this essential? And if it's not, you question it. Do I need to do it? Could someone else do it? Could I do a smaller version of it? So you're trying to select what's essential and eliminate or reduce what is non-essential and then build a system in your life to protect and encourage you to be able to do those things that matter most in a way that's actually easier over time. This is what essentialism is. That is such a good way of thinking about or summarizing this idea. I've read your book a couple of times, and I really appreciated the line drawings that you have within it, illustrating what you just mentioned, this idea of looking at our day through this lens of essentialism, and also managing not only the joy and the happiness that we get from doing certain things or not doing certain things, but also taking a look at our energy and how that is also impacting our life. And you have this sketch in the book that has two circles and both have the word energy written inside them. And then kind of like sun rays, there's little short arrows that stem from the circle on the left. And then one long one that stems from the circle on the right. And we'll make sure to post this image on SparkJoy podcast for those listening who would like to see a visual of this. Greg, could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind that image? Because I really do feel like it, it simplifies your, your message in such a way and just complements it in a way that really makes sense. It actually came out of a conversation I had with somebody years ago, and I was listening to them, and I was trying to understand the challenge of their life. Uh, they were a professional who, you know, family, married, had a demanding job. Uh, he had many requests upon him. He was a passionate person. And as I was listening to this, it started to sound not as positive as 
does at the beginning of that paragraph, it started to seem like it was quite painful for him and quite stressful for him. And so literally, as I was listening, I'm quite visual listener. And so I, I just drew this circle with many, many arrows coming out of that same, you know, so you've got the core energy, but it's going in many different directions. And I I showed it to him and it said, it just sounds like your life looks like this, where you're sort of making a millimeter progress in a million different directions. And he looked at it and he said, Greg, he said, like, that is literally the story of my whole life right there. And it named this pain for him. I didn't have the language then, but this is non-essentialism. Non-essentialism is basically a con because it promises great results. It promises if you can fit it all in, shove it all in, then you can have it all. But it doesn't deliver on almost any of its promises. It doesn't do what it said on the packaging it would do. And so the second image, what I then drew out from in this lunch conversation that we had together, was the same circle, meaning you've got the same amount of energy, but instead of it being many different arrows, there's just one. Like what would happen if you could take all of that effort, all of that energy, all of that resource, and you could point it towards one or at least a few things instead of dividing it across many different areas. You could make a lot of progress. And so the idea is that it's not just one arrow. That arrow goes to a higher and higher point of contribution because you're not trying to do it all. You're you're not trying to do everything perfect now. You're not trying to do everything that you see everyone doing on Instagram. You're not in a competition to do everything brilliantly. No, it's a completely different perspective. You say, look, I want to do the right things at the right time for the right reasons. I want to discover and fulfill my essential mission in life and not feel that I have to do it all and be it all. What I need to do is, is just what I am built to do, what I came here to do. And this isn't a selfish idea. Actually, it's the path to a higher and even highest point of contribution in life. That's what the story is behind that image. One of my great passions is minimalism and essentialism in art and architecture or even in everyday items, furniture, decor. And while you were talking I could think of a kind of an overused phrase, but that I think is so useful is, what is this in service of? And for me, this whole less is more and form should follow function is so interesting when you are getting rid of superfluous things and the energy that all the superfluous things draw from us is so Enormous. And even when you look at something like a building and you can see the curves or a feature that is just decorative but doesn't serve a purpose, and you recognize, of course, it's, it's very fine to have things that don't necessarily serve a stated purpose. Maybe they are just for decoration, but there's a cost to all of those things. And certainly, whether it's a, a building or a chair or life decisions, it's that same idea of what are you tacking on top of the core essence of what it is that you're looking for in order to almost hide from something. It's such an interesting idea. I think in the building of our lives, 
we have got to be honest about whether we've been building it by default or whether we've been building it by design. And when you get into designful building, it's not that my life will look like your life. It doesn't create sameness, even though the process of building it is actually quite similar. In fact, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the elimination process you would go through in clearing out the closet. Okay. So yes, we know we'll step one, take everything out of the closet, evaluate each item. Does this spark joy? Do I wear this often? Is this useful to me? Does it fit? <laughs> you know, all these questions to select which items, which relatively few items go back on the shelf. Okay. In that process, when we've gone through that, your closet will literally not look like mine, right? Nothing in my closet will fit you. Nothing in your closet will fit me. The colors won't be the same. It's unique to the individual. But what it has in common is that when you walk in there, there's space, there's a feeling of clarity. And of course, there's a feeling of satisfaction and even joy as you go, oh, this is, these are the things that really I want to have at my disposal when I want them to be able to put them on. There's a feeling of, of gratitude in the process. Similarly, to design your own life according to essentialist principles, you explore what is essential, you create space for that process, you eliminate, you know, let's call it the 90% rule. Anything less than 90% important is at least questioned or in fact entirely discarded so that your life is full of just those things that really are important, are vitally valuable to you, create joy for you, and that becomes a greater and greater portion of your life. In fact, my basic argument is that those 10% vitally important essential activities, relationships, causes, those things are sufficient to consume all of the time that you have remaining. <laughs> so that means that every time we delve into something that's, let's say, 40% important or 30 or 20, or in fact, 10, it's just not even important at all, but we're still doing it. We're taking away from something that's essential. We're making a trade-off between something that's vitally important and something that might not be important at all. And so that's really what we're going for is to be mindful and thoughtful about that so that our life is full of those things that are both satisfying and meaningful and enjoyable. It's fascinating to think that oftentimes when people begin this journey or when they begin to limit the amount of things that are coming in and out of their lives, they think in terms of my closet will be bland after I get rid of everything that's not working for me or everything will be the same or minimalism and essentialism really means that you have removed all of your personality. But what you just described is actually the entire opposite. It's really much more personal and much more something that you yourself would identify with once you remove all of that excess. Yes, because essentialism really is about becoming more and more of who you really are and less and less of who you really aren't. And so, I mean, in my own family, for example, my eldest is now 17, but when she was maybe, let's say, 10 years old, thereabouts, I remember she slipped a note underneath our door. She'd stayed up late one evening and she was brainstorming. 
and she was brainstorming questions that we'd been discussing as a family and and not just once but many times uh, most of the time when i travel i bring one of my children with me so she's seen essentialism many times participated in the conversation lots of times and it's just sort of in the air also in our family culture so she'd been brainstorming literally a question like this what's my 100 year vision <laughs> what is it that you know i can uniquely contribute to the world what's my mission essential mission in life i mean these were the sorts of things she was staying up brainstorming on this sheet of paper and she slipped it under because she realized even there at 10 right that all of her life had remembered life so maybe since she was 5 she had wanted to be she didn't have the word for it at 5 a director she wanted to be a director movie director and so there at 10 she has this insight it's not a passing fancy it's not just something that she's heard someone else do and now is trying it on she's sensing it from inside of her and it's a 10 out of 10 yes it's a clear resounding yes it's a sort of yes that's going to echo for years forward into her life and she can tell that it's a big deal so that's why she writes this all up and slips it under now that's 10 years old so what does that kind of clarity help her to do going forward well among other things that have followed from that is that starting a lot younger than any internship i ever did anyway she's been able to do internships you know with other production days with other film shoots she's been able to participate help learn about it she was able to graduate high school you know a couple of years early so here it just turned 17 she's spent the last year and a half i think now certainly a year the local community college she's doing media arts classes she's doing videos in that she's literally i mean she maybe wouldn't want me even sharing but she's literally getting on projects out of 50 points she's getting 50 is like 100% this is because she's been able to identify a resounding clear yes a 90% or above yes and so she's made one decision that's made a thousand decisions in the future that to me is an an example of how pursuing essentialism doesn't create more sameness she's not trying to be like everybody else her age she's not trying to just fit in she's trying to fulfill her unique and essential mission and that to me is a helpful frame wow at 10 years old she had such a clear vision and vision mapping and planning and also this idea of having a resounding yes they so closely intersect with the Kanmari method. When there's a tidying event in front of you, the first thing you do is sit down and figure out your vision. And then as you're making thousands of decisions moving forward, you are grounding them in the whole idea that they must spark joy. And spark joy is a high bar. It's supposed to be a very strong, clear, confident yes and, you know, having less things that are more like, yeah, those are okay, or yeah, those work. So I'm curious, we know that Marie Kondo stands by the concept of does it spark joy? And that question is the foundation. What would you say is the question for essentialism? Is it essential? Or maybe there's some other questions that those who are KonMariing could ask themselves to kind of intersect the two. I think that first question, just what's essential? Mm -hmm. Or a different way, is it essential? really goes to the heart of it. I mean, it literally is in the word essentialism, because that distinguishes it from, for example, noism, <laughs> where 
you're simply saying no to everyone and everything without thinking about it. That's not what I wrote about. That's not what I'm trying to say. Even though I believe completely that elimination is a vital part of the process. You know, you explore what's essential, but then you eliminate what's non-essential. It's not sufficient to just know what matters if you still end up doing everything else anyway. I have a friend who's trying to clear through everything in his garage. Uh, he's got all this stuff, too much stuff. Well, knowing what matters and then leaving everything else in the garage isn't going to do it. You've actually you've got to remove, you've got to trade off something less important so that you have the space and time to be able to invest in what really matters. So to me, it starts with that question, what's essential, but it isn't over until you've decided. And of course, decide comes from the Latin to cut or to kill. So it's not until you've actually eliminated that you really have decided what is essential. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. Wow, I never realized that that was actually the Latin root of that word. And that makes all kinds of sense now that you say that. Let's just riff on it for a second. The root word is um, it's CIS or CID. And so it's the same root as you find in words like scissors or fracticide or yes. homicide. <laughs> it's the same idea. So it's this forgotten definition that as soon as you bring it forward, you go, right, the act isn't just saying yes, it's the full yes, meaning that I'm not going to do this thing anymore. I in the hospital had already said, yes, my wife, Anna, and my daughter are really important. I didn't have any ambiguity about that. What I had not decided was to cut off something and another commitment. And so, so therefore, I was in a straddled position. And when I was preparing to launch Essentialism, the podcast, I went on and asked the Essentialist community, who should I have as my first guest on the show? And the most popular answer was my wife, Anna, which I was thrilled about because she's the most important person to me. And so I really did secretly want that to be the response from everybody. And so people can go back and listen to the first episode and get to hear what was that moment in the hospital like from her point of view? What have we learned since together as a couple? And so I think people will maybe find it interesting. It was a little vulnerable for me, but I think it might be interesting for people to get sort of the other side of the story. Very interesting that you mentioned your family because my next question for you has to do with how essentialism has impacted your home. I'm wondering about the decisions that you've made about the things or the number of things that you 
have chosen to have around you in your home? To me, there's really one shortcut to becoming an essentialist. And you can think about this as three circles, concentric circles. The outside circle is all of the other projects, the other stuff. It could be any number of things, but includes all the emails you get. It includes anything you could be learning on social media. It can include any projects you're trying to do out there. The next circle in is family. And the problem is that non-essentialists start with the outside circle. And then whatever's left, they then share with their family, which often is not very much. They're exhausted by the time they get home. They don't have a good cutoff. Okay, this is the end of work. Now I'm going to be spending time with family. So it all just bleeds in further and further. So there's less and less of them to offer. So they don't show up super well. They show up a little irritated, frustrated, exhausted, and so on. The innermost circle, the final circle, is protect the asset. That is your mental, emotional, spiritual, physical health. And that's the thing that often people leave to the very end. And so you can imagine that what's left after the other two is almost nothing. Like a a friend of mine who said to me, they said, well, really at midnight, I should be going to sleep. I'm exhausted. But instead, I'm trying now to create some sense of mental health for myself. So I spend two hours scrolling through Zillow, you know, looking at all these different houses I could or maybe might buy one day. That's the non-essentialist approach. Here's the simplest idea in the world on how to become an essentialist. You just reverse the process, the order. You start with protecting the asset. That's first. It's always first. It's the highest priority because you're the only asset through which you can contribute to anybody else. It's also the first because this is where you gain the discernment necessary to even try to evaluate the other options and ideas and possibilities of the day. So by protecting the asset, you then show up for your family differently. You're able to listen to your spouse better. You're able to invest more presently with each other, with the children. You're able to create a positive culture in your family. And once you've done that, it means that you're then able to move into the other projects with a clearer sense of unity, a higher level of confidence, and can then select more carefully the projects you even do. So that's all to say that if you get the order right, what happens is that personally you end up with this high positive energy yourself, And secondly, you can then bring that essentialist energy into the culture of your home. And we've done that, tried to do that in a variety of ways. But I'll give you just one small example. We've introduced the language of essentialism into our home. So our children know what a trade-off is, can use that terminology and have since they were very young. And I remember one of you know, when my son once came to me and he, we were talking about decision and he said, yeah, I just don't want to make that trade-off. I don't think that's the best trade-off. And he's, <laughs> you know, he's young saying this. Another example, my wife and I had signed him, the same son, Jack, up for baseball for a season. And as the season approached, we suddenly realized and remembered how much goes into it. And we thought, is it really worth it? 
but we felt that, well, we have to do it. And then we realized, well, that's not a good way of putting it. We choose to do it because what? Well, we choose to do it because otherwise he'll be disappointed. And so then we were able to test that assumption. And we said, Jack, come in here. We're thinking about not doing this, but we think you'll probably be disappointed. So how do you feel about it? His response, oh, that'd be fine, Dad. No problem at all. Three months resolved, three months saved, a ton of energy for everybody involved for something that we thought might have been important, but turned out not to be important. That's an example of how once you get the essentialist core within you, it starts to affect the culture outside of you. And so you can make different decisions and make sure that each of your children too are doing the things that help them to thrive and spark joy for them. I think that makes so much sense. Really introducing this language early, it's probably never too soon to really start to think about things with this idea of trade-offs. And I love that you have that idea of protecting the asset as well, which is so important. And we say that in different ways here on SparkJoy, whether it be prioritizing your self-care or putting your oxygen mask on first. And I noticed you had a lot of great recommendations that we've also discussed on the show. You know, we often talk about mindfulness and meditation and all of those things. Journaling popped up within essentialism, which was really interesting. And you had a very unique take on that. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you can journal like an essentialist? A lot of people listening to this have had the experience with journaling where they get excited about it and they say, okay, I'm going to write I'm writing a journal. And that first day, they write a veritable essay. It's three pages long. It's five pages long. I mean, it's it, they really just download. And maybe they even quite enjoy doing it. But day two comes along, and they already used up the hour the day before, and they had to push other things out to make that hour to journal. So day two, they're trying to do a little bit of catch-up for the time they spent the day before. And they think, oh, I just don't have an hour. I can't, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. So now we're on day three. Now they have two days worth to catch up. It's just overwhelming. They're out before they barely begun. They're just, it's too much. And so I felt like there's got to be a different way. I want to be able to write my journal in a way that is sustainable. I don't want to do it one day. I want to do it for 10 years more. And so I had an upper and lower bound. And the rule was this, no less than one sentence. But here's where it is different than I think maybe other people uh, who have tried to do a similar thing. It was no more than five sentences. There was an upper bound so that I couldn't feel overwhelmed by it. So it meant on day one, when I felt highly motivated I was ending way before my motivation had ended. So you're hungry to do it the next day. Well, the next day you think, well, I can do five sentences. And if, if I really stretch, I'll just do one. So it's totally doable. And I just had that goal. I will never miss a day. That was really my goal from that point. And it's really been at least nine years. And it, you know, I, I mean, I, I really hardly missed a day in nine years now and, and, and not many days in the last 15 years. Because if you set the right upper and lower bound, it helps you to be really consistent over a long period of time. And that's what I was going for. Wow. Every day for nine years. I feel like you should 
win some type of journaling award if that <laughs> exists for consistency. That's amazing. Wow. Well, uh, let me tell you just a little more backstory that I don't cover in the book Essentialism is that my grandfather's, well, one of them passed away in New York. It was the only relative that had lived in America. And so I went there and met my mother and we went through all of his things and and we were organizing, you know, who to invite to a memorial service. And we, I realized, look, what he's left behind is nothing. He took it with him. I wasn't sure exactly who to invite to that memorial. I didn't know if the people in his address book were people he'd known for 50 years and were close friends or whether they're people he just met last week and, you know, some errand that they did. I mean, I had just no idea. When my other grandfather, I visited with him towards the end of his life and he gave me a copy of one book, this book that he has. And this is a book that he'd written in two or three sentences every two or three days for 50 years. Wow. And so here's this thing that it's just hugely different. One person leaves nothing. One person, there's a whole story. There's who he was with and where he went for 50 years. I felt like, my, that's achievable. We could just do a little bit over a long period of time. That could be powerful. And that's really the essence of essentialism, if you think about it. It's just that little that little bit of the most important things. Yeah, I really love that. I love that technique. That's a great idea. And it might get me past my, instead of nine years, my nine-day record of keeping a journal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that we're getting to whatever the new normal is, I know that our listeners would love some tips and techniques for how to define and evaluate and reevaluate the truly essential items or thoughts or feelings or attitudes or actions to propel them toward the future. Can you share some of your thoughts about that? Yes. First of all, I've created an Essentialism 21-day challenge that people can can download. Uh, if they search for 20, Essentialism 21-day challenge, they'll find it. Uh, and these are all specific, very doable things that you can start to do on this journey to becoming an essentialist. I'll tell you one of the ones that's my favorite. It's day eight. And I'm not kidding about it either. It's to take a six-minute nap. Add sort of five to ten minutes to fall asleep. So we're talking, you know, 15 minutes in all. And I mean every day. It's the highest thing that somebody can do to restore their executive function which will help them discern better between the essential few and the trivial many. I mean, the research is very strong behind it. I don't have to get into all of it. But literally, that's one of those activities right at the core of protecting the asset. And a lot of overachievers, it's one of the things that's most counterintuitive for them. They think it's, okay, you've got to get on the next project, work really hard, force it, push it, do something. Go take a nap. It will increase your discernment. It will help you to see things, oh, I shouldn't even be bothered with that. Why am I even bothering? And to reset your day. And by the way, the highest performers simply do sleep more and take more naps than the average performers. And as Erickson's research in this is very strong, the top performers sleep on average 8.4 hours in every 24-hour period. They literally take more naps than the good performers or the poor performers because it's not just how many hours you work on a thing. 
It's how many hours of physically and emotionally healthy work we're able to do on a thing that counts. It's so interesting because a lot of times you hear completely the opposite. People talk about how little they sleep and how little sleep they need in order to achieve a lot of whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. I can't wait to implement that tip immediately. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not kidding either. Like, it's the big challenge. I talked to somebody once. She said to me, she said, oh, Greg, I'm so... I said, just how are you? That was the beginning of the conversation. How are you? I'm so busy. She said, I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. And Mm -hmm. she's smiling, you know. Why is she smiling? (laughs) You know, she didn't say it, but I think she was boasting. I think she was saying... Greg, I hate to break it to you. I'm a little more important than you are. And she didn't know she was talking to an essentialist. She didn't know that that is not the frame I'm coming out of at all. And so we we kept on exploring a little together. But you see, here's the thing about the four-hour boast. I don't think any of us would say, so-and-so down the street, so-and-so on my team, you know, so-and-so in my family, they are so marvelous the way they're drunk all the time. <laughs> I mean, the way they make their decisions, inebriated like that, superb. The sermon's up, productivity's up. I mean, we would never say it, would we? It's, it's ludicrous. Sure. Nevertheless, our psychological and physiological position is the same when we've had four hours a night of sleep as if we are drunk. It is enormously affective and weakening of our ability to discern and to perform. So really, we've got to change the story from this non-essential con, one hour less sleep equals one hour more productivity, and instead embrace this protecting of the asset, creating this high, what would I say, high quality type of energy that we need for discernment, that we need for making good trade-offs, that we need for being able to to do the most important work of our lives. And that begins with prioritizing sleep. We're all spending a bit more time at home these days for the health and safety of ourselves, our family, and our community. Are you feeling a little too close to your clutter for comfort? Maybe you're buried under stuff in the home office or craft space, or you're trying to carve out dedicated space for work or homeschool in your basement or on your dining room table. Or maybe you've noticed just how much time you're wasting looking for important papers and emails instead of shifting your time, energy, and resources towards the things that truly matter. During quarantine, my number one priority is to get as many people as possible clutter-free and prepared for the other side of this challenging season. If you're regularly asking yourself, where should I put this? Or am I letting go of enough? Or am I even doing this right? As you can worry, a customized virtual tidying experience may be the perfect next step for you. While stay-at-home ordinances are activated, I'm continuing to offer virtual Kanmari-based active tidying lessons, including a tidy desk special, perfect for those working or learning from home. Visit ForTheLoveOfTidy.com and click Free Consult to discuss the various virtual organizing options available to help you dig out and choose joy once and for all. 
such an important point. And we're going to challenge your ability to discern actually right now, because we've come to the point in the episode where we love to challenge our guests to share their favorite productivity tip. It could be related to tidying, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. I came across something recently that I I loved about tidying. It was in a book called Goodbye Things. And one of the tips in there was discard one thing right now. I love this because sometimes people can feel overwhelmed, not by tidying itself, the task itself, but by the idea of tidying. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the idea of I've got to tidy everything, I've got to do it all, means that before they have discarded even a single item, they're done. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just on Netflix instead. They're just on Instagram instead, on YouTube instead, or on any other project. And so I love the idea that really tidying isn't hard. It's actually easy. The task itself is easy. It's one task. It's one item. Discard one item. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is literally true. Every time I remember that instruction, I have to discard something. And as soon as I discard one thing, I discard something else. And I just think it's like the California role of tidying. It's the, it's the entry point, a small thing, and you get the satisfaction of having done it. And then it encourages you to do it again and again. Love that. Love that. And so we also have to ask you, as we do all of our guests, what is sparking the most joy for you at this very minute? The way I want to answer that question is by something I recently learned when I was interviewing Rachel Hollis, also on the Essentialism podcast. And she said something in passing that really grabbed my attention. And I've been working on it and writing about it on a new book that I'm writing ever since. What she did is in her journal, she'd taken some time to write down a list of things that spark joy for her. So as silly as they might sound, as weird as they could be, what are the things? And I did the same thing after I'd heard this. I wrote down a list of 20 things. And they're unique to me. Some of them, I think, wouldn't spark any joy for like anyone else. But they do for me. And I was wanting to admit them and just write them down. And I had my wife, Anna, do the same thing. And what that gave us, that list, was like Lego building blocks so that whenever we want to build a new ritual that we look forward to, we can look through that list, choose something that sparks joy for us and link it together with the task that is important to be done. So like our financial meeting, that's something we don't generally look forward to. It's done out of duty. It's a bit drudgerous, in fact, for us. But now that we have this list that sparks joy for us, we're able to select between them. We said, okay, well, how could we turn this into something enjoyable, something that we genuinely look forward to? And so we said, okay, well, we could, listening to certain music on repeat, actually, for me, is something that sparks joy, certain songs. I thought, well, we could put on that music. There's a particular kind of dark chocolate that my wife likes. Okay, we're going to have it so we can only have that while we're having our financial meeting. Uh, we realized, well, we enjoy being together. That it reframed the financial meeting. We said, well, we like, we always like going on walks and on dates. So suddenly we can remember that 
and just emphasize that. And so we pieced these things together uh, and it became a genuinely enjoyable, almost like a, you know, a fun financial meeting, a party almost, because we combined the essential thing that needed to be done with stuff that we already were going to do anyway and look forward to doing. And so we created a ritual that sparks joy for us that used to spark, as I say, uh, you know, drudgery for us. That's amazing how you turned that around and you made financial budgeting fun. That's such a great tip. Yeah, it doesn't sound believable, does it? When you hear it, even when I hear you say it back to me, I think, no, no, it can't be fun. But I know what it is for us now. And you can design experiences, you can design essential things, essential activities, essential responsibilities to be fun, or you can design them to be awful. <laughs> and so I'm just true. saying, if you want to, you can design them to be fun, enjoyable, and you'll actually look forward to them. So true. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. How can our listeners keep in touch with you and download your challenge? I think the best way to do that is just to go to essentialism.com and uh, they can sign up for the newsletter. They'll get sent, you know, helpful insights and things to get started on for free. The Essentialism 21 Day Challenge is also there. And as we continue to evolve that site, there's some, I won't get into quite what they are, but there's some exciting things coming there as well. So they'll be the first to know when, when we launch a couple of extra things. Perfect. And we'll make sure to link all of Greg's information and links to his 21 Day Challenge as well as his podcast in our show notes. Thank you so much, Greg, for helping us figure out what's essential these days. We had a great time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. It was so nice to chat with you today. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community or join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.